This is Deb Donig with Technically Human, a podcast about ethics and technology, where I ask what it means to be human in the age of tech. Each week, I interview industry leaders, thinkers, writers, and technologists, and I ask them about how they understand the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. We discuss how we can build a better vision for technology, one that represents the best of our human values. Today, I'm sitting down with Dr. Pallavi Banerjee. Dr. Pallavi Banerjee is an Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of Calgary. Her research looks at the intersection of gender, race, and class to see how these identity categories play out in the everyday lives and interactions of immigrant and transnational families as the consequence of institutional and state policies in the West. Her new book, The Opportunity Trap, High-Skilled Workers, Indian Families, and the Failures of the Dependent Visa Program, published in 2022, has just come out from New York University Press. Hi, Pallavi. Hi. So, Pallavi, it's great to see you again. The last time we saw each other was at last year's panel, Tech Intersectionally Examined. Since then, you've been very active, you've been incredibly high energy, and you've published a book, The Opportunity Trap, High-Skilled Workers, Indian Families, and the Failures of the Dependent Visa Program. First of all, congratulations on the book. That is so exciting. I wanted to jump in right away and ask about the introduction. Uh, In that introduction, you talk about the very roots of that word, visa. Now, I had actually never thought about the root of the term visa before, and I was really interested in the definition and the etymology that you give. So maybe we can start there. What is the definition of visa? Where does it derive from? And what does it currently mean in the context of the United States? Thank you. Thank you, Dal, for having me. And I'm really excited to be talking. I think this is the first time I'm talking about my book because it was released like three days back. So very excited to be here. So uh, to answer, to jump into your question, the word visa, actually, the term derives from the French word visa. (laughs) I don't know how to say it in French, but (laughs) I think it's visa, which means having been seen. Or there are other definitions and meanings that have been posited in other places, which means certified. So having been seen or certified. And this word was sort of imported into this lexicon of immigration terms and was used as a technique of the state to dominate internationally mobile populations. And the term visa is actually defined as the authorization that's given by a consul to enter or to pass through a country. So a consul of a state two people, two individuals to pass through a country. And this is signified through a stamp that's placed on the passport when the holder enters or leaves a foreign country. So in the current times, visa approvals also require what we know as pre-screening of travelers and represents prima facie case for admission. So what that means is that if you have a visa stamp, you can't enter a country that's not your own or where you don't have citizenship of, depending on the person who's letting you in. So uh, there are different levels of admission and approvals that one goes through, even if they have the approval as a visa stamp. So one of the one one aspect that I sort of emphasize in the book is that visa becomes then a tool 
of discrimination. It's inherently discriminatory because it's a discrimination that is an inherent characteristic of this the visa system itself because uh, relevant policies and laws are instituted and categorized so that the international mobile population are seen as temporarily or as temporary and non-permanent and they are seen as usable bodies and entities that can be let in but also thrown out when the state that issues the visa deems fit so a visa can be revoked this population that is at the mercy and whim of a visa approval includes in the context of the united states international students, temporary non-immigrant workers that are skilled, that are categorized as skilled, semi-skilled, um, low-wage dependent migrants, so immigrants who come as dependents of international students or temporary workers, and refugees, visitors, and tourists. And in the United States, in the context of the United States, there are different categories of visas that are sort of assigned to each of these populations and they have their own regulations and constraints that define how these populations live in the United States for how long they can live and what is their future in the country. So visas sort of regulate the bodies and the subjectivities and entities, people who are on those visas. Well let's let's put some pressure in. Maybe you can start off by just sharing with us, you know, why should we in the tech space care about visas? What's the relationship between visas and tech and ethics? That's a great question. Well, you know, we should care about visas in the tax space because interestingly, at the largest number of visas, skilled workers, temporary visas are issued to tech workers in the United States. And most of these tech workers come from India and followed by China and other Asian countries. So one of the largest populations of skilled workers in the United States arrive on these temporary visas that then dictate their work experience in the sense of what kind of work they can do, how they are seen as the employer, by the employer, sorry, how they are seen by the employers that employ them. And often these visas, not often actually, all cases, if they come on skilled workers visas, which are called the H-1B visas, they are actually tied to the employer that hires them. So it's the employer who sponsors them for these visas, and they are almost beholden to the employers, meaning that if they were to leave their jobs, or if they were fired, then their visa status would be nullified. So they no longer would be legal or legal residents of the United States if they were to change jobs. So what that does is that really ties the workers who come on these visas to their employers and subjects them to exploitation of various kinds that, you know, I have a chapter in the book that kind of goes, runs through all of the exploitative mechanisms that are in place for tech workers. I also talk about nurses who are primarily women, also professional workers in the United States who also come on temporary visas. So there are different types of exploitative mechanisms that are put in place for men and women. So these these become gendered and racialized in the workplace. 
And that's why I think we should care about visas and, and the idea of how, as I call it, the visa regime sort of operates and constrains the subjectivities of workers who come to work in the United States and who are actually invited into the United States to work because the apparent reason for having so many skilled tech workers from the countries of the global south, particularly India, China, and other Asian countries, is because for years the U.S. Congress and the corporations have said that there is shortage of skilled workers who are Americans, who are who have American citizenship. So that's sort of the pretext, though I argue in the book that that's only half of the story. You know, people on visas make exploitable labor who are also docile because of their precarious legal status. And that's why there is ethical implications for having workers on visas, particularly in the tech field. Well, let me just play devil's advocate with you a little bit, because I can imagine that our listeners might have some reasonable objections. And I wanted to hear what your counter arguments might be. You know, I take your point that certainly uh, being on a visa that ties you to an employer makes you dependent on that employer, allows that employer perhaps to pay you less than they might otherwise pay you, or perhaps if you're unsatisfied with the job after you arrive, you are beholden to that company in ways that if you are from the United States and not dependent on the visa, you might have more mobility and more agency in. But I think that a reasonable objection would be to say that if these workers are coming to the United States for the job to be to begin with, then certainly um, it's not just the company exploiting the worker, it's also the worker benefiting from access to the job and wages from the job. And that workers, if they're highly skilled workers who want to come to the United States, are oftentimes not just dependent on, but also perhaps mobilized by companies that provide them you know, the legal support and the immigration support to be able to come here. How would you respond to that kind of counter argument that suggests that it's not simply a kind of exploitative measure, but also one that has some mutual benefits for each of the two parties, both the worker and the employer? Sure. And I have heard that argument a lot of times. And I'll just step back a little bit, talk about global mobility of labor under capitalism, under late capitalism. So what what I mean by... Well, let's define that term first before we move forward. What what do you mean by late capitalism and and how how do you define that term? Because I know there's a lot of kind of floating definitions around. Right. So late capitalism is this post-Soviet era capitalism where we are living in a connected world, interconnected world, where markets, global markets are connected to each other. So it's sort of the product of globalization in, in a neoliberal form where markets sort of define where people go and, and market is sort of the structure that leads people to their various destinations, whether to work or to travel or, or to have opportunities. So the, mar- the market defines opportunities for people globally. So it's the interconnectedness of markets in a globalized fashion. And I'll start with what my participants told me about this particular point where that being able to come to the United States to work was and indeed an opportunity, which is why I call the book The Opportunity Trap, because it's it's presented as an opportunity. Often the people who are 
availing these visas and taking these jobs on see them as an opportunity. But I'll just go behind the scenes a little bit and tell you how this mobilization of labor happens. So a lot of the participants, a lot of the tech workers in uh, my research were tech workers in India before they came to the United States. And they were part of these massive tech corporations or tech firms that do not produce really products, tech products, but they produce skilled tech workers, which become their sort of product. So they, they export tech workers for producing products in the global market. And a lot of these workers go to countries in the global north, particularly the United States is a favorite destination, followed by the UK and Australia, because these countries need tech workers to work on their tech products. One of the things that was shared with me by the tech workers, many of the tech workers, was that some, some really wanted to come to the United States, but some actually did not want to come to the United States because they saw that their lives in India were was better, particularly because if they were part of a family, then their spouses were able to work and lead their lives. But to come to the United States with family and spouse meant that the spouse became a dependent, came on a dependence and became a dependent, which a lot of the workers uh, did not really appreciate or like. But the way that this market, the globalized tech industry works, is that these tech workers could not get a promotion and they were their careers were stalled if they did not agree to be sent to an offshore location. And that offshore location was often in the United States. And in the context of tech labor, these uh, workers who were sent to companies, in tech companies in the United States and other parts of the world were called body shop labor. And what that meant was that they were basically bought, their bodies were shopped out to work on tech products. And in terms of this idea that tech workers who come to the United States, they do have legal status. So I want to clarify that that's, that's a real privilege, given that we have a lot of undocumented workers in the United States. But when they are a part of the body shop labor force, they are often paid less than their American counterparts. A part of their money, actually the, the money that they earn goes to, to the body shopping agencies that send them to the United States. So there is a network of exploitative sort of institutions that then this individual has to navigate. And they often do not have a lot of choice in their migration history or their migration uh, trajectories. I want to back up a little bit because the research that you conducted is in itself, I think, very interesting. You conducted extensive one-on-one -on -one interviews with individuals and families, gathering a large range of stories and data. What were you hoping to find or solve or highlight? And what were some of the outcomes that you ended up coming to that you weren't originally anticipating that you would find? Absolutely. I think that's a great question. So when I started this research, you know, I'll back up a little bit and say that I grew up in India and I grew up during the technological boom, the worldwide technological boom in the 1990s. And during that time, I had noticed a lot of my friends who were women
or my cousins who were older cousins um, who were professionals in India working really good jobs, very highly qualified, moving to the United States, often with their tech worker husbands, and and then becoming what they defined as housewives, forced housewives. And this was when I was really young. I was in college, you know, looking at my life ahead. And one of the things I kept hearing from these women is that if you ever come to the United States, never come on these visas, on these like terrible visas, right? I, well, I heard them. It was like, oh, you know, of course I was very troubled by their situation, but I'd never put a lot of thought to it. And then when I came to do my PhD in the U.S. and in Chicago, this was fast forward, like maybe 15 years later, I came to the United States in 2005 to do my PhD. I kept meeting women in the city who, Indian women who had come on these H-4, what's called the dependent H-4 visas, with their tech worker husbands who were on H-1B visas. And they seemed as unhappy and as frustrated. And many of them told me that they had contemplated suicide. And many said that their marriages were breaking because they, this was an untenable situation. And so that's what sparked my interest in this research, that this has gone on for so many years and there was just no conversation about this. So what I really was interested in is how these visas that are actually given to those spouses of tech workers, spouses and children of tech workers, which are the age four dependent visas, affect gender relationships within these families. And at the same time, I came across, so in my sociology classes, I read about Indian nurses who had been coming to the United States since the 1970s, also on skilled workers visas, and they were often bringing their husbands, men, uh, on these dependent visas, and they were the women were the main breadwinners, the husbands were dependents. So I went into this research trying to explore the gender dynamics that happen in these two sets of families, where in one set of family the men are the breadwinners with women who are legally dependents, families that look like sort of the 1950s Betty Friedan kind of like uh, American New nuclear families with women staying home and men being the providers and the breadwinners. And then another set of family where gender um, roles are sort of reversed. So where the nurses are the breadwinners and you have men who are legally dependent and are staying home. So I was just curious about how these visas, this sort of arrangement that are dictated by the visas, I call it the state-imposed dependence, really affect gender dynamics within the family. So that's what I went on to explore. And then what I found instead, the visas not only affected like intimate partner relationships within the families, but it affected the selfhood, like how people saw themselves, how the, their interactions with public institutions in the United States, the workplace dynamics for the tech workers and the nurses, parenting. And so it almost affected all parts of their lives. And so that's what the various chapters in the book sort of go through, how these visas impact the various aspects and the various interactions that the participants of my study on the different visa statuses had with institutions in the United States, including relationships that were more intimate and personal. And one of the things I appreciate the book about the book and about your work is that when you talk about 
tech. We're going far beyond thinking about actual technological products. We're going far beyond thinking about Silicon Valley. We're thinking globally in the sense of the globe. And we're also thinking about, you know, how this kind of industry itself creates seismic waves that impact all sorts of other systems and all sorts of other parts of our lives. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you're thinking about the technological space uh, when we're thinking so far afield in terms of so many levels of departure from actual technological products them, themselves or even you know technological culture in and of its own circumscribed framework. Sure, that's an interesting question. Um, what you're saying is how does this work comment on the larger technological uh, world stuff? Yeah, what it means when we say that we are talking about tech. Yeah, I think um, what's interesting is that tech tech and tech products, that's what we think of, right? Codes and coding and, and creating different tech products is just a really tiny part of this technological world that we inhabit. In some ways, I haven't really touched on this in the book, but I talk about how this focus on tech and tech products create a certain kind of technocentrism and also technocratic citizenship that then overpowers all of the labor that goes and, and labor exploitation that goes into the making of tech worlds, right? So because we are so focused on the products and it, it often becomes this sort of technocratic dis discussion of the tech world, we need skilled workers, the idea of the skilled worker, the idea of specialized workers. So the, the visas, going back to the visas, the visas that the skilled workers come on are called specialty occupation visas, and they are given to people who are defined to be in specialty occupation, and that often leads to this eulogization of the technological world as something something more hierarchically above other other fields of work. So the focus on tech products takes away from the various human aspects of the tech industry. And the human aspect of the tech industry really lies in the grunt work that goes into creation of fancy you know, tech products. One of the things that uh, I do explore in the book is how a lot of the participants in my research, particularly the tech workers, talked about this form of the work that they do in even in the Silicon Valley, but in giant tech divisions of, say, Bank of America or the State Farm Insurance Company is this assembly line work where they never know what the product would be. They just are part, a tiny part of a massive product, and they are basically engaged in coding the same thing over and over again and coding efficiencies and how they can create this product in the least time possible. So this, this coder, this tech worker, has no idea what they are creating. They are so removed from the product, but the labor that that individual tech worker, along with the many tech workers, particularly the immigrant tech workers, is putting day in and day out in very exploitative conditions, makes for a product that they never get to actually see. Ever. So it's, it's this alienation from work, the alienated worker, whose time is what the tech firm sort of has bought, right? And this time is a measure through being tied to their visas because often what happens is that because their employer knows that they're on visas and that they have dependent spouses at home, that their time is completely 
dedicated to work. They they don't have anything, any claims on their leisure time. So time is what time and labor is what makes the technological worlds and the technical worlds possible. And and I think what my book does really, I think effectively, and the readers will know, is unravel and and open up this behind the scenes labor that goes into making the tech world possible. But so then, is this a case of, you know, bad actors and a couple of corporations that are exploitative, exploiting loopholes or a system? Or is this a problem in the system itself? I think it's a problem in the system. And it's sort of a global problem in in many ways, because of the interconnectedness of markets. Tech companies in India would make no profit if they were not able to send workers to to corporations outside of India, particularly in the global north, because that's where the problem lies. And for that, governments need to talk to each other. So there needs to be a legal way for workers to come to the United States. And when states are involved, individually know this from research, when states are involved, individuals become insignificant. And I talk about the idea of governmentality in my book, which is a concept by Michelle Foucault, which talks about these techniques of of domination that are often implemented by the state to make the individual compliant with state laws and rules and and status discourse. And, And so this is a problem that exists both at the meta-ideological level and also in in the context of institutions. It's, it's embedded the exploitative structures of global mobility of labor and workers is embedded in an ideological space, but also in institutional mechanisms of controlling individuals. So I would say these are multi-layered. It exists at the institutional level, it exists at the ideological level, but it also exists at the individual level where where people internalize this idea that it's a choice that they are making. It's an opportunity that they are availing. And that hides the other, the mechanisms of exploitation that is often not clear. Okay. So then if you, if you, if you're talking about, then this is a systemic problem. Is there a systemic solution to the problem? Because I like to talk, I I think as, as academics, we like to find the problematics in the the discourse. I'm very familiar with that myself, but then I think, okay, well, here's a couple of solutions to the problem. One solution, so to speak, to the problem would be to say workers should stay in their country or in the place that they come from, which I actually don't see as a viable solution. I'm, I want to be much more open to cultural uh, immigration, to the idea of open mobility, to the idea of open borders. I think that that kind of isolationism that says we don't want to bring workers here because we don't want to exploit them gets day really dangerously close to we don't want workers here, period. The kind of rhetoric we would hear from somebody like Donald Trump. Conversely, the same kind of rhetoric that we might hear from somebody like Bernie Sanders, who would say that we want to kind of have another form of moral isolationism. So I don't really see one option as let's keep everybody where they are because we don't want to either exploit them or we don't want to host them to begin with. And on another you know, level of problem solving, I could see something like open borders for all. And there might be 
levels of exploitation there and levels of not prioritizing certain workers who have a genuine claim to want to come here that might actually morally, as well as logistically supersede others to be perhaps deprived of the opportunity to come here because of a kind of more open border scheme. So how would you posit a kind of solution without transgressing into all of these kind of messy moral spaces that some people might say would be the outcome of you know trying to solve this problematic? Absolutely. I don't have a very good answer. <laughs> I don't think you'll be satisfied, but I, I will say I'm not advocating that we, you know, keep workers where they are, that there is no mobility possible or that mobility in itself is exploitative. I think what we need to change is what I have called in the book the visa regime, in which which becomes incredibly constraining for people. And, and, and visas are constraining for everyone. When I was doing this research early on, I had presented in a um, conference and one person raised their hands and said, well, when I go to Italy on a visa, I can't do certain things. So, you know, visas are always constricting and have limitations. But I think when we want workers to work uh, in our in our industries and in our corporations and by our, I am, you know, it's the power. I think the conditions of those visas need to be actually made less exploitative. So one example I would give is that for Indian workers, for instance, and this is particular to Indian workers, because the the number of Indian workers that come to the United States on skilled workers' visas have gone up every year, and I think they make about 80% of skilled workers uh, from all over the world that come to the United States. One of the things, one of the outcomes of that is that while these visas make it possible for the workers to apply or, or their employers to apply for permanent residency or green cards for these workers, they, for Indians, take an incredibly long time. So it's upward of 20 years. Some people have been waiting like above upward of 25 years. And what that means is that for the period of time that they are in this sort of liminal space where they are really on a visa, but they have been approved for permanent residency application, they are beholden to their employers, which means that they cannot leave their jobs. If they leave their jobs, their permanent residency application gets nullified. That creates conditions for extreme exploitation. And it also affects their family lives because their spouses are not able to work. Um, so I think the restrictions on the visas and, and the pathway to permanent residency needs to be really made possible and expedited and made smoother. So there are these fixes that can be made where if you have, if you need the labor, why would you not want them to have the rights of other workers? And so I think this process of permanent residency needs to be smoothened. So that's one solution that I can offer. The other solution would be to actually bring workers with permanent residency instead of having them be on these pieces, right? And then they can follow the trajectory of other immigrants that come to the United States on permanent residency and that, you know, after five years, they can become citizens and whatnot. But this long period of wait which is often touted as a broken immigration system, backlogs. I read it as more time for 
labor exploitation. If that can be tackled, and I don't know that it's such a difficult thing, because in 2015, President Obama passed an executive order that actually made it possible for spouses of H-1B workers to get work permits. And, you know, Trump tried to revoke it and resend that policy, but it has been in place now and there are some hiccups, but they now can access work permits once they have cleared the first level of uh, approvals for the green card or on the permanent residency. So if that could be done with an executive order, I think there are mechanisms for this to be possible. So that's on the U.S. side. On the Indian side, I think workers just need more agency to de decide if they want to leave. Uh, and labor laws and, and loopholes around labor laws is harder to tackle in a country uh, like India. Corporations can do a lot with labor laws. There are labor laws, very good ones, but that is a, a bit harder where corporations are concerned and where actually the remittances that tech workers send back to India form a part of the GDP in India. So there are governments and, and corporations invested in in the export of labor, but that also needs to be kind of addressed at the same time as we are talking about overhauling the immigration system in the United States. You know, I couldn't help think as you were talking that this book must have taken a while to write. If you were conducting one-on-one -on -one interviews and thinking through the framework and working through the theory, I know that I'm still trying to finish a book that began as my dissertation about in 2014. So we're going on, you know, close close to eight years now, uh, the one that I had. But gosh, I'm thinking about this and I'm thinking about how much has changed in the past, you know seven or eight years that you may have spent writing this book. We have gone through administrative changes here. Certainly, we've gone through a significant amount of changes in thinking in uh, Indian politics and governance as well. We have gone through a global pandemic where the changes in global mobility have radically shifted, not only between who goes and travels where, but also the possibilities for remote work that don't require people to move and leave their the spaces where they have family and where they have roots to go somewhere else for an opportunity or for a job. How have the terms uh, that you began thinking with, you know, it, it, the onset of this book changed as the politics and as the context of mobility and as the political terrain in the global context has, has shifted? Absolutely. I At some point, uh, I was talking to my editor at NYU Press and she said, you can't keep your book beholden to political changes because you'll never finish it. This was when Trump came to power. And I was I was talking to her about how this is changing the landscape of my book completely because the workers that were already in the United States on these visas had new political terrains to navigate and new sort of surveillance techniques that they that was being imposed. So I think the book has now gone through like I would say three presidents in the United States and two in the context of India. And so when I finished I finished my dissertation in 2012, late 2012, early 2013, and you know, Obama was in President Obama was still in power. And there was so when I started right where when I started my dissertation work, there was absolutely no public discourse on visas or how 
how tax visas or skilled workers visas and the analogous family visas, dependent visas were affecting tech workers' families or uh, professional workers' families. And by the time I had finished writing, there was also, you know, social media had become sort of tool for expressing dissent. And a group of dependent visa holders had formed this Facebook group called H4 Visas of Curse, and that had sparked these conversations in the media about the exploitative nature of this, like, packaged visa, <laughs> the visa package of high-skilled workers and the dependent visas. And I think that was the time I was writing my dissertation, and I did some public writing, so I wrote for the Miss Magazine and all of that. And, and so some of my writing, along with this advocacy group that had formed had been pushing at this policy and, and that kind of sparked this change in policy and President Obama kind of listened to these advocacy groups and came up with this executive order. And that was that felt like a great moment of achievement and accomplishment in, in this in this struggle. And then Trump came and everything was not only back to square one, but it kind of it's became worse. There were there was more surveillance on tech workers. I mean, visas became more restrictive. It was harder for uh, tech workers to get visas or skilled workers, anyone to get visas, but skilled workers to get visas. Uh, there were random raids that were executed on, on in tech firms to see if the immigrant population or, or the temporary workers population was legitimate. And that created this culture of fear among the tech workers, many decided to go back to their countries, even at the risk of losing their jobs, not only in the United States, but in India, in the original tech companies that they were parts of. There were people who were living in fear of being deported if their visas expired, and if they did not get new visas, then they'd become undocumented in the United States. So all of this happened while I was writing the book. And so I did new follow-up interviews, new interviews to figure out this idea of a Trumpian immigration regime. And I call it, you know, Trump is gone, but I call it the Trumpian future that has been created that is looming large. So if there is another government or another figure like Trump, we may go back to this culture of fear and, and, and just panic. And uh, now that Biden is in power, I think there was definitely a sigh of relief among among my participants. But there is also more complacency, I, I feel like, uh, both among people who are advocating for change, but also in the government. And, and I think some of the policies from the Trump era are still in place, just not being implemented in the aggressive way that it was before. And the rhetoric has definitely changed. So I think it's it's a matter of discourse as well. In the context of India, we have a Hindu nationalist government which really thrives on 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 its support on the support it has among Hindu nationalists in the United States, and so they have an investment in tech companies or 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 investment in exporting workers to the global north because that feeds in money into their political agenda often. So. These are really complex situations, and I think that's probably the next trajectory that I will take is talking about the political economy and how that 
really impacts the lives of immigrants and, and, and immigrants, people who are likely to migrate. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking as you were talking about the political economy and its impact on tech, you know, we are very critical in, in my corner of Donald Trump's policies with regard to tech and visas and globalization. But I'm also, now that we are six years out of it, increasingly critical of the kind of Obama era utopian thinking around tech. If those of you who may not recall that era, there was a tremendous amount of excitement around the options and possibilities that technological products and technological companies and technological culture was supposed to bring us. This was an era where we celebrated the kind of interconnectedness embodied by Facebook, the enormous wealth generated in Silicon Valley by tech firms and by tech companies, the amount of money that that these firms were generating, the possibilities that they had for solving problems around the world, the ways in which they were cultivating and bringing connections and expertise and all forms of entrepreneurship from other countries to the United States. When you look back on that era, are you like I am critical of the kind of hope and the promise of technological industry in these terms? How do you think about that moment in tech culture and in political culture as we are, you know, six years or so removed from it at this point? I am also critical of it. <laughs> I'm critical of it in a way that there was, as you said, there was utopian hope created around these ideas of interconnectedness and tech as a democratizing you know factor in our society and creating these interconnected worlds on a global scale uh, while those were sort of utopic ideologies what it created as i had mentioned before what it created were technocratic spaces and technocentric ideal ideologies that put the product that tech is at the center of discourse and conversation and muted and often shrouded the labor and also the exploitative mechanism that goes into make anything hegemonic. So tech became this hegemony almost like if you are part of the tech industry, you have made it and you are part of this global citizenry, right? And you, you can go anywhere, you become a global citizen almost and but other other laws and other rules and other other issues around border crossing and borderlands were not really attended to the other part of this was also that this focus on 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 tech and this is not something that i talk about in the book but the focus on tech really took our attention away from other forms of labor that goes on to make, make tech possible. So people who are doing everyday labor, like landscapers or, or, or people who are building infrastructure and road, those are not seen as tech for some reason. That's technology as well, right? Healthcare workers, and we've seen the importance of healthcare, the frontline healthcare workers, not not doctors and, and for some reason we skewed the idea of tech to these few tech giants and these massive corporations and forgot yeah digital products and forgot that technology exists everywhere else and there's labor in that technology and and devalued the work done by other tech technical workers 
monsters, and I think that that's probably what I'm the most critical of. We made the monsters that Facebook, Twitter, and these giant corporations now are because of this utopia and this hope that we created around them. And are you hopeful moving forward for in 2022? I don't know. <laughs> I think there is hope in the fact that there is more. There are more voices that are coming together that are critical of big tech. There is also more voices that are coming together to talk about labor, labor exploitation. That is the mainstay and the pillar of, of big tech in the United States. So I am hopeful in, in the sense that I think there are spaces for dissent. But I'm not hopeful because I don't see dismantling of the structural forms of oppression that we really need to address. And your podcast is called Technically Human, and where do we lose the human in the tech? I think we really need to refocus our attention there and do some overhauling. Thank you very much, Polly. Thank you.